Section 3 of Lectures on Tropical Diseases by Sir Patrick Manson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2. Dragontiasis Endemicomoptesis. The extracorporeal life of the next group of germs or parasites of which I shall speak is more complicated than that of Ankylostoma duodenali, described in my first lecture. Just as in the case of the Ankylostomum, the ova or embryos leave the human body in the excreta, or it may be in the secretions, or through some skin lesion, but unlike Ankylostomum, the first start in life is made in the water, not in the soil. The embryo is passed into, or if not already free, is hatched out in the water, where it swims about until a happy chance enables it to enter a suitable animal intermediary, in which to undergo further and necessary developmental change. When these preliminary changes are completed, the still immature parasite escapes from its intermediary, and then in water or insisted on some aquatic plant or animal finds its way back to man. The intermediary being a tropical species, the parasite also is necessarily tropical, and therefore the disease to which it gives rise can be acquired only in the tropics. It is quite possible that some of the protozoa, for example, that known as Leishman's body, may have some such life history, but as yet so far as this dangerous organism is concerned, our knowledge is too limited to justify anything like a positive statement on this important point. But as regards certain trematodes and nematodes, either direct observation or analogy warrants us in concluding that substantially the route described is that by which they pass from human host to human host. I shall select as illustrating this method of infection three tropical parasites, each of which may and often does give rise to grave disease number one guinea worm number two paragonimus westermani and number three schistosoma hematobium of the three perhaps the most curious and interesting is the guinea worm dracunculus medinensis it occurs in india persia arabia africa but not at least at the present day so far as i am aware in america or in asia anywhere east of india in many parts, both of India and of Africa, it is exceedingly common, especially so at particular times of the year. Large numbers of the natives may be affected, and not infrequently European visitors are victimized. You are not likely to see guinea worm cases in America, but for many of the tropical possessions of Great Britain, Dracontiasis, as it is called, is quite an important disease. Every year I see several cases in London. The patients are mostly Lascars or native sailors from India, but now and again I see the disease in travelers or soldiers from tropical Africa. In many parts of West Africa, it is a positive tax on the military departments of the various colonies. A soldier with a guinea worm in his leg cannot march. Very often he is seriously ill, and it may be three or four months before he is of any use for campaigning. And when, in a body of soldiers, you get one case, you are nearly sure to have many cases, for all have most probably been exposed to the same chances of infection. 
Thus in September last, an outbreak of guinea worm occurred among the black troops stationed at Old Calabar. The disease was acquired during an expedition in the hinterland some twelve months before. At first the cases were few, but they soon rapidly increased in number, so that on some mornings upwards of sixty soldiers were on the sick list suffering from the guinea worm. So serious was the outbreak that, owing solely to this event, a company of soldiers had to be requisitioned from Lagos to assist in carrying through the military operations which had become seriously hampered by the big sick list. In this epidemic, 161 cases, including four European officers, occurred, that is, 15% of the force employed. The guinea worm at maturity is a long, white, cylindrical organism some two or three feet in length, and about as thick as a fine whipcord. She, the female alone is known, is of uniform thickness throughout, unless for about an inch or thereby, where she tapers slightly to the abruptly rounded-off head and to the hook-terminated tail. She lies irregularly disposed in the connective tissue between the muscles or under the skin. She has a good knowledge of anatomy, for when at maturity she moves down to the leg or the foot as she generally does, she never wounds the blood vessels or nerves and rarely strays into the joints. In due course, when ovulation is completed and her embryos are ready for temporary independent life, she drills a little hole in the derma, but does not penetrate the epidermis. Over this hole a small blister or bulla forms, perhaps half an inch in diameter. By and by the bulla bursts or is ruptured, disclosing a superficial circular erosion in the center of which may be seen the minute hole leading to the worm, or from which half an inch or more of the head of the worm may be seen protruding. The appearance of a guinea worm at the surface of the body is sometimes heralded by a rise of temperature and an urticarial eruption, a phenomenon in harmony with similar evidences of absorption of some form of toxin elaborated by several of the larger animal parasites. The same kind of constitutional disturbance may take place from the absorption of hydatid fluid in infection with roundworm, tapeworm, and etc. If, at the time of her appearance at the surface of the body, you manage to procure an uninjured guinea worm and dissect her, you will find that from the head to tail she is little more than one long tube packed with young. To accommodate the millions of long-tailed embryos, nearly every organ of her body has been more or less sacrificed. The uterus itself is reduced to an exceedingly delicate, non-muscular tube, its functions as a contractile organ having been relegated to the stout musculocutaneous integument which constitutes the outer skeleton of the worm. Even the alimentary canal is but a mere thread. Although thus devoting herself practically entirely to reproduction, the guinea worm is nevertheless at this stage in a grave obstetrical dilemma. In the process of uterine expansion, her vagina has become obliterated. Moreover, owing to her position at the surface of the body, if by any means she should succeed in expelling her young, most probably they would perish for want of their proper element, which, as I shall presently show, is water. 
Here, then, we have an organism packed with an enormous brood of water demanding embryos, without a contractile uterus, without a vagina, and far away from the element her young require. How does she manage to launch her brood so that they may obtain a chance of life and so continue their species? By a very simple and easily performed experiment. You may learn in what way nature cuts this Gordian knot and gets over what to all appearance are insuperable difficulties. Perhaps some of my audience may think I am wasting time over these apparently trivial helminthological details. I do not agree with this opinion. These parasites, as I have shown, are in themselves of great practical importance. Moreover, by the contemplation and study of their habits, of their biological requirements, of their difficulties and contrivances, we are sometimes led by suggestion and analogy to a clearer and better understanding of the more intimate and more difficult to observe, and from the medical and practical point of view, perhaps, more important disease germs. At least I have found it so. The same laws, the same logic apply to big and little parasites alike. They are more easily perceived, more easily grasped and studied in the case of the larger organisms. Thus the study of helminthology is not only of direct practical value, but it is an admirable introduction to the still more complicated and obscure problems of protozoology and bacteriology. To return to our experiment, let us suppose a guinea worm has broken cover over the dorsum of a patient's foot. As a rule, all we see is a small circular erosion with a minute hole at its center. Now place the patient's foot in a good light and in a position favorable to close observation. Fill a sponge with cold water and squeezing the sponge gently, get a trickle of water to fall on the foot some distance, say a couple of inches from the little sore. The water need not and for our purpose should not touch the sore. Meanwhile, watch carefully the little hole. In less than a minute, the cold water trickling on the foot the while, there will suddenly well up from the little hole and overflow the sore, a few drops of a milky-looking fluid. In ten or twelve seconds this flow will cease, and it cannot be reinduced until after some hours, when a fresh application of cold water will again provoke it. Take up in a watch-glass some of the milky fluid and place it under a low power, an inch objective, of the microscope. It is a mass of embryo guinea worms, each worm bent on itself, with its long slender tail sticking out at a tangent from the ring in which the body is disposed. There is very little movement beyond now and again a wag of the tail. Now add some water to the watch-glass. In a few seconds the little worms extend themselves and begin to swim about, at first slowly, then with increasing vigor, until finally the preparation is a seething mass of wriggling worms, a most remarkable sight. Manifestly the young guinea worms are in their proper element. They will live thus for eight or ten days, some of them especially in muddy water, even longer. Evidently we have assisted at the parturition of a guinea worm, and at the introduction of her young to their future career. But you may ask, how has the worm managed to get over the difficulty of the absence of a vagina which has become obliterated, and the absence of contractile elements in her uterus 
which are necessitated in order to accommodate the prodigious swarm of embryos with which she is packed from head to tail if you have patience and visit your guinea worm daily and douche the patient's foot daily keeping the worm from injury in the intervals by covering the sore with some simple non-poisonous dressing very likely you will get your curiosity gratified and will witness a display of obstetric surgery not to be beaten even in the most advanced clinics sooner or later at one of your daily visits on removing the dressing you will find that the worm herself has partly emerged from her hole half an inch or even more of her head protruding now repeat the douching and watch the head carefully presently a beautiful delicate and pellucid tube is slowly projected from her mouth to the extent of three-quarters of an inch or thereby at first clear the contents of the tube rapidly become milky evidently from milky material being forced into it from behind the little tube now becomes very tense suddenly it ruptures and collapses and the milky fluid containing the embryos is spilt over the sore and surrounding skin a wonderful thing this parturition has been effected in response be it observed not to a stimulus applied directly to the worm herself but to a stimulus the cold water applied to the skin of her host with which she has no organized connection somehow this stimulus has induced contraction of the musculocutaneous coat of the worm which thus comes to function as a uterus by forcing the uterine tube with its contents through the mouth of the worm when the prolapsed uterus ruptures the protruded and now collapsed portion shrivels up into a mere thread the rapid drawing of which effectually and firmly closes the womb for the time being but on reapplying of the stimulus of the cold douche some hours later a fresh portion of uterine tube is protruded ruptures and collapses once more securing the discharge of another batch of embryos and so the process goes on until inch by inch the entire uterus is expelled and parturition is concluded the process takes from about a fortnight to three weeks to complete when this her sole object in life is attained the worm dies and is expelled or more often is pulled out bit by bit or entire and with or without separation strange midwifery this full of meaning and purpose if we but interpret it aright let us see if we can in nine cases out of ten the guinea worm presents in a foot or leg there is reason and significance in this the foot and leg are just those parts of a negro's or indian's body that are most frequently brought into contact with water that is to say the element required by the embryo guinea worm in its first step in extracorporeal existence as it would be mere waste of life were the parent worm to expel her young where there is no likelihood of their finding water she usually travels to the lower part of the lower extremities and there waits patiently prepared to respond at once to the signal supplied by the immersion of the foot that her opportunity has arrived this signal given her young are promptly spewed as it were from her mouth and securely launched into their proper element this sounds like fiction but it is not fiction it is absolutely true 
I have over and over witnessed this marvellous display of what for want of a better name we call instinct, and I have often shown these things to our students at the London School of Tropical Medicine. I believe the worm, long before she is ready to expel her young, comes to the feet and legs, because, if I may use the expression in speaking of so humble and brainless an organism, she knows that these are the parts oftenest in contact with water. She is attracted by the water. I have reasons for this belief. In the few cases of guinea worm I have seen in the shoe and stocking wearing, but bath-loving European, in a large proportion of them, the parasite has presented somewhere on the surface of the trunk, scrotum, or thighs, parts just as frequently in their case in contact with water as are the feet and legs. In the case of the beasties or water carriers of India, who carry the water in leaking skins slung over their backs, when they are attacked by guinea worm, the parasite presents very frequently on the back, that is to say, in the part most frequently in contact with water. The guinea worm knows this. There can, I consider, be no question as to the influence of the presence of water in determining the region of the body selected by the guinea worm from which to discharge her young. I suggest that this is brought about by the frequent contact of this region with water, a circumstance of which, as proved by the experiment I have just narrated, the parasite evidently takes cognizance. It may be that the water attracts and draws her. On the other hand, it is quite possible that the parasite appears at water-bathed parts, because she has developed in these parts, having entered the body there originally. The point, an interesting one, has not been settled. There is some evidence, indeed, that the latter conjecture may be correct. Thus, the four European officers in the expedition to West Africa, to whom I have already alluded, as having been victimized by guinea worm, throughout the whole of the campaign drank only filtered or boiled water and therefore were not likely to have swallowed young guinea worms and so become infected by the mouth but they did bathe frequently in the dirty water of the country and might have been infected in this way through the skin let us now follow the career of the young guinea worm and endeavor to ascertain why the parent worm has been at such pains to get her brood into the water we will try another experiment. Procure some freshwater cyclops from a weedy pool and place them in a watch glass along with young guinea worms and a liberal supply of water. Leave them together overnight. Next morning examine the cyclops one by one with a low-power microscope. In nearly every instance you will find one, two, three, or it may be a dozen young guinea worms slowly coiling and uncoiling themselves in the body cavities of the little crustaceans. They have effected an entrance by boring their way through the delicate membrane that unites the plates of the ectoskeleton. You may even see them engaged on this operation, which the cyclops evidently resents but is powerless to prevent. They deliberately select cyclops, for if there are any other species of crustacean in the water as is likely daphnia for example these they will not enter manifestly some species of cyclops is the proper intermediary of the guinea worm keep a stock of infected cyclops in a warm room and from day to day dissect one either by tearing it up with needles or by crushing it under a cover glass 
you will in the course of a few days or weeks be able to ascertain that the worms undergo a process of development during which they drop their tails cast their skin several times become greatly increased in size and ultimately obtain well-developed alimentary systems so far the development of the guinea worm has been traced the remainder of its life history is a blank it has been conjectured as i have hinted that after completing the necessary developmental changes in cyclops the parasite is swallowed in drinking water while still in the body of the crustacean or it may be after it has escaped from this intermediary or that it may obtain access to the human tissues in the same way that the ankylostomum does namely by boring its way through the skin being picked up by the human victim while wading or bathing in infected waters what the male worm may be like or where or when impregnation is effected has still to be ascertained evidence is accumulating that the lifespan of this parasite is just about one year the fact that in certain places there is annually recurrent guinea worm season points to this conclusion of similar significance is the fact that two or more fellow travellers in a guinea worm district have subsequently and simultaneously developed the usual evidences of a guinea worm infection a year from the date of their visit to the endemic locality some time ago i was asked to see in consultation a gentleman who had guinea worms presenting in both his thighs two on one side one on the other side he told me he had just returned from india where during the previous three months he had been on a shooting expedition and where according to his view he had acquired the parasites i told him that this view was erroneous seeing that the guinea worm took a year to mature on further inquiry i learned that about a year before i saw him he had visited lake rudolph in british east africa returning to england via the nile undoubtedly it was during this trip and not during his subsequent visit to india that he became infected two or three days after i saw this gentleman i was consulted by another sportsman traveller also about a guinea worm which in his case was presenting in the right axilla i asked him where he had been a year before he told me at lake rudolph and that he had come home by the nile strange i said i have only quite recently seen another patient suffering from guinea worm who also had visited lake rudolph a year ago and had come down the nile what is his name he asked i told him why he said he was my companion undoubtedly these two fellow-travellers had picked up their guinea worms at the same time or about the same time this little narrative proves that the period i mention one year is about the limit of the life-span of dracunculus medinensis manifestly this year-long life-span has reference to is an adaptation to the habits of its special kind of cyclops intermediary host which in turn depend on special hydraulic and thermic conditions recurring annually in the endemic area i say special kind of cyclops and perhaps additional intermediary host and for that reason were the presence of cyclops the only condition determining the presence of guinea worm then guinea worm would not be nearly so limited in its distribution as fortunately it is even in the endemic districts it is acquired only in certain places from certain wells or pools of water where undoubtedly some peculiar condition perhaps some peculiarly favourable species of cyclops occurs 
not improbably after quitting cyclops the larval guinea-worm has to enter yet another intermediary possibly for sexual purposes before it is fitted to invade the tissues of man this blank in our knowledge of the life-history of the guinea-worm demands further study anyone desirous of undertaking this very interesting and important piece of research must visit the endemic districts and set himself to work out the fauna of the guinea-worm pools which usually are very well known to the natives the guinea-worm embryo has a long and danger-beset road to travel before it arrives at maturity the prodigious number of its young indicates this of the millions that set out on the journey only one or two ever reach the goal of maternity the chances of any given embryo of any parasite or any animal for that matter arriving at maturity is in rough proportion to the fertility of the species nature meets difficulties of this description by multiplying proportionately the numbers of those who face them millions perish one succeeds the habits of the guinea worm have a practical as well as a scientific interest their proper appreciation is or should be our guide in treatment if they are disregarded and if the guinea worm is maltreated she may prove a really dangerous parasite and give rise to lesions of a serious sometimes of a grave or permanent character if as is too often the case rude attempts at extraction are made before the worm has finished the emptying of her uterus she will resist with all her might and clinging to the tissues by means of the hook at her caudal end snap across rather than suffer extraction then the trouble begins her myriad brood escaping from the severed body get into the tissues of the host and cause a considerable amount of irritation and much swelling microorganisms of suppuration finding their way along the track in which the broken-off portion of the worm has lain and entering the area of irritation produce violent inflammation abscess and sloughing much suffering ensues and weeks it may be months elapse before the patient is able to get about again the proper treatment therefore that which is indicated by our knowledge of the habits of the guinea worm and endorsed by experience is either to leave her alone protected from injury or to excise her bodily or to kill her at once taking care not to rupture her body deep down in the tissues she can be killed easily by injecting her through her mouth using a hypodermic syringe for the purpose with one in a thousand solution of bichloride of mercury this not only kills her but renders her and the track she lies in aseptic she can then usually after a day or two be slowly wound out round a piece of stick in the time-honoured fashion before injecting the bichloride an attempt should be made to aspirate through the hypodermic needle some of the contents of her uterus so as to give room for the solution to be subsequently injected she may sometimes be killed by injections of the bichloride solution into the neighborhood of her track when as is sometimes the case her folds lie superficially and can be made out through the skin it shortens matters very much to cut down on her and draw the loops out carefully never using much traction but if necessary making two or three incisions to facilitate removal or if we elect to leave her alone perhaps because we would like to study the process of parturition i have described or to examine and experiment with her embryos it is well to encourage the emptying of the uterus by frequent water douching 
When the young are no longer emitted in response to this stimulus, it will be found that she herself will no longer resist energetically attempts at extraction. You can wind her out then with less risk of rupture or subsequent inflammation. On the whole, you will find that the familiar obstetric aphorism, meddlesome midwifery is bad, applies to the parturient guinea worm, just as appropriately as it does to the parturient woman. The next illustration I have selected of a parasite or disease germ, which after being voided into water, enters an intermediary and subsequently a human host, is afforded by the lung fluke, Paragonimus westermani. I select this parasite because it has or may have a special interest for Americans. My first acquaintance with this trematode was in 1880. I was then in practice in Amoy, China. At that particular time, I was interested in the subject of homoptysis and availed myself of every opportunity to examine with the microscope blood coughed up from the lungs in phthisis, in heart disease, or in any other morbid condition that turned up either in hospital or in private practice. On one occasion I was consulted by a Chinaman, a petty Mandarin, about an eruption between his fingers, to wit, the itch. While I was engaged in examining his hands, my patient began to cough. He hawked up and, after the manner of his race, incontinently expectorated the result of his efforts onto my study carpet. I observed that the expectorated material was red and viscid, and so instead of reproaching him for spitting on my carpet, requested him to repeat the cough, and this time to deposit the sputum in a watch-glass. He very obligingly did so. My forbearance was rewarded. On placing a little of the rusty sputum under the microscope, I found it to be loaded with little brown operculated bodies, manifestly the ova of a parasite. On interrogating my Chinese friend, he told me he was a native of Fuchow, but had of late resided in North Formosa. He had come to Amoy quite recently. The blood-spitting, he told me, began in Formosa. He told me further that he knew of a number of similar cases there. Evidently the disease had been acquired in Formosa, and was probably endemic there. He told me that every morning on waking he coughed up an ounce or more of the viscid brown material, and during the day smaller quantities of the same description of sputum. He told me that more than once since the cough began he had brought up suddenly large quantities of bright red blood, and that this was not an unusual feature of the disease as he had seen it in Formosa. About this time I had in hospital a Portuguese who suffered from some obscure thoracic trouble. I suspected aneurysm. The patient had, like my blood-spitting Chinese Fred, come from North Formosa. He got a certain amount of relief from rest and iodide, and desiring to return to his home in Tamsui, I gave him a letter to my friend Dr. Ringer, who was in practice there at the time. I mentioned my tentative diagnosis and requested him to clear it up by a post-mortem examination if such could be obtained. The man died, and Dr. Ringer made the autopsy. In his account of this, Dr. Ringer told me, among other things, that in making a section of the lungs he had come across a minute, fleshy, slightly flattened, oval body, gray in color, and about a quarter of an inch in length, which at the time appeared to be alive, for as he watched it he saw some brownish material expelled from a minute orifice near one end of the flattened surface. 
suspecting the nature of this body i asked dr ringer to send it to me if he had not thrown it away in due course i received the specimen preserved in spirit and had the satisfaction of finding in the sediment of the spirit brown oval operculated ova identical in all respects to those which my chinese patient had so obligingly provided some time before i sent the parasite to dr cobalt the leading english helminthologist of that day who believing it was new to science very appropriately named it distomum ringeri when i stumbled across this formosan disease i was not aware that a short time before my observations were made professor belts of tokyo had encountered the same disease in japan he had not seen the parental form and supposing the ova in the sputum were some form of gregorine had named the disease gregorinosis pulmonum on submitting specimens of the ova to Lucart, that distinguished naturalist recognized their true nature later on parental forms turned up in japan it was found that the supposed new distome had been seen many years before and described under the name paragonimus westermani the first specimens having been procured from the lungs of a tiger gradually information has been accumulating about this disease and we now know that it occurs not only in north formosa and japan but in korea also possibly in china and moreover that it has appeared in the united states of america as regards the united states so far there is no record of its occurrence in man but according to ward and others it has been found in cats dogs and pigs possibly it may have occurred in man or possibly the disease being of recent introduction into the states man as yet has not been infected that he will by and by be infected there can be little doubt therefore i would advise you to bear this parasite in mind should you come across a case of chronic non-tubercular blood spitting and to examine the sputum with the microscope on the chance that it may contain the ova of paragonimus westermani on making a post-mortem examination of these parasitic blood spitters what are known as the burrows of the parasite are found in the lungs principally toward the periphery of the organs there may be only one such burrow or there may be many in the latter case the lungs being seriously damaged the so-called burrows are little tumors or rather thickenings produced by inflammatory exudate in the parenchyma of the lung they may be as large or even larger than a walnut the tumors are riddled with small passages or burrows in which the parasites lie these passages communicate with the bronchi into which the ova-laden mucosanguinous material bathing the parasite escapes according to the degree of the infection is the gravity of the disease it may be inconvenient only or it may be very grave from the recurring attacks of profuse hemoptysis to which the patients are liable or it may predispose to some other form of pulmonary disease it goes on for years rarely are the parasites themselves coughed up although every day a certain amount of the rusty ova-bearing sputum is expectorated or swallowed apart from the lung condition paragonimus westermani is responsible for other and even more serious mischief the lung is evidently its normal habitat but this parasite like so many others is a wanderer in its youth and may lose its way in the human body thus it sometimes strays into important organs which are manifestly unsuitable for its biological requirements 
in these organs it forms characteristic burrows in the irritated infiltrated tissues thus it has been found in such localities as the scrotum the liver and also in the brain should it stray into the last mentioned organ it will necessarily give rise to grave nervous disease such as jacksonian epilepsy and other signs of intracranial tumor and will ultimately cause death unfortunately the life history of this important parasite beyond the first and final stages has not been ascertained we know that the first step is made in water i had no difficulty in procuring abundant supplies of the sputum from my chinese patient for experimental purposes reflecting on what might be the natural destiny of sputum cast on the ground i concluded that it must be in one of three directions first it may dry up and so far as the ova it may contain our concern perish second it may be eaten by some animal third it may be washed down by rain or otherwise and so get into wells or pools of water i experimented in the direction suggested by the last consideration i found that if the sputum is mixed with water and the water changed occasionally after some weeks more or fewer according to temperature a ciliated embryo developed in each egg by and by the embryo emerged from the egg by forcing back the operculum closing in one end of the shell it then swam about with great energy for many hours beyond this not being in the endemic region i could not further follow its career but analogy indicates that if fortunate the ciliated embryo gets into some fresh-water animal possibly a small mollusk in which it undergoes the well-known evolutionary changes characteristic of the diastomes when these are completed it finds its way in water or insisted perhaps on some water plant back to man again it is important from the standpoint of prevention that the life history of paragonimus westermani be worked out for once lodged in the human body our power over it is at an end in the event of jacksonian epilepsy or other evidence of intracranial tumor appearing in a subject of endemic hemoptysis there is ground for assuming that the symptoms are produced by the invasion of the brain by this parasite in such a case if there are localizing symptoms there is distinct justification for an attempt to remove the verminous tumor by surgical measures end of section three